the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, we're trying our best. Good afternoon. Welcome. It's the Wednesday edition of, no, it's not Wednesday, it's Tuesday. How did I get that? You know, it's uh, it's been one of those weekends. Really? Lose track of time altogether. 29th day of March, and in case I frightened you because you thought you'd lost a day in the week, it's actually only a Tuesday. <laughs> we'll try to do the uh, the entire show in real time tonight, shall we? <laughs> Craig Roberts with you, and uh, as always, a delight and a privilege to spend some time with you as we talk about the important issues of the day and their impact on your life. Coming up a little bit later on, if everything goes as planned and the crick don't rise, as they say, we're going to get you an update on what's been going on in Ukraine, talk about some of the broader European security issues, even as Russia talks about a pullback, and yet, is it a pullback, really? And once the damage has been done, the destruction has been committed, and a nation laid bare in many metropolitan um, centers, um, you know, a pullback essentially means what? Okay, now you deal with the mess. We're going to get some insights on that coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. Meanwhile, love to start out with some good news, and especially when it's good news coming out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Historically, historically, we can pretty much bet that it's going to be craziness offered by the panel. But this time around, they actually saw fit to, um, to render a decision that is very supportive of the church. With more details, we're joined now by the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, counselor. As always, good to have you on board. We talked about what had been going on in the city of Salinas with New Harvest Christian Fellowship some time ago, that they had uh, apparently purchased a building downtown, and the city thought, yeah, you guys just aren't fun enough for our downtown area, and actually attempted to try and block the church from using its own building. Give us a bit more background on that, and then tell us what did the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals say? Yeah, the... Uh, you know, the downtown, you know, the city of Salinas, uh, the city council refused to grant the church a, a use permit uh, to uh, be able to use the uh, both the lower and the upper level of the, the building they bought it, right there in downtown. They, the church had already been functioning across the street in another building. Uh, but uh, this, like I said, this, this uh, city of Salinas said, oh, no, we churches aren't fun enough. You can't do anything on the first level that related to your church. Um, it was outrageous. We filed our lawsuit. The federal district court judge ruled against the church. We then we didn't give up. We appealed it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Our outstanding chief counsel, Kevin Snyder, argued the case, and uh, people were praying. And to make a long story short, the Supreme Court revert. Excuse me, the Ninth Circuit reversed in uh, three to zero and said that church has a right to be there. City of Salinas, 
uh, back off and allow them to be there. It was a fantastic victory. You know, we all get the fact that there are many small downtown areas that have been suffering. I mean, retail first got hit by large malls, and a lot of people left the downtown area, headed off to the mall. In more recent years, the impact of things like COVID, the advent of the Internet has had an extreme inter- uh, impact on both, where, quite frankly, malls today are in as much trouble as many downtown areas. But at the end of the day, to, to suggest that a church doesn't have the right to operate in its own building downtown because it isn't either A, creating um, tax flow because there's no sales tax involved, or because they don't contribute to, and I love the language, vibrant and fun pedestrian-oriented atmosphere, <laughs> really makes me wonder whether or not the uh, the city fathers there in Salinas are familiar with a little document called the uh, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution of the United States. That apparently was a new one on them. Yeah, the, the First Amendment free exercise clause doesn't have a, 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 you know, an exception you know, saying, well, you're protected to practice your faith so long as the city thinks you're, you're fun and vibrant. Uh, that's nowhere in the Constitution. <laughs> and uh, the Ninth Circuit realized that uh, plain and simple and we're really pleased. It's a, it's a big win uh, for the rights of churches to go where God's called them to do and to minister and uh, not have to deal with, uh, I'd be defeated by hostile bullies uh, like the city of Salinas. Do you think the message will reverberate? And I ask that question because I think of other churches. Um, a faith fellowship here in in the San Francisco Bay Area, in San Leandro, they ended up having a similar battle where they purchased property, they were ready to uh, begin using their facilities, and in this case, the city of San Leandro came in and said, no, 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 you're, you're in an area we really want to keep it for uh, light industrial warehousing, retail space, things of that sort. We're not going to allow you to use your own property. That created a big brouhaha that I, I think wound up going all the way up to the high court. I just have to wonder, how many incidences of these do we need to experience before cities begin to get the message that there are protections that are afforded and things like the Religious Land Use uh, and and Institutional, Institutionalized Persons Act, you know, codifies the ability of a church to use property for religious purposes. And yet we see these cases time and time again. You reported on one up in the Pacific Northwest in, in, uh, in Oregon recently. How long before they get the message, in your opinion? Well, I'm not sure that they'll ever totally get the message when you have uh, communities like, you know, in many of the San Francisco Bay Area and other parts of the, of the nation that just have a disdain, uh, not just complacency or ignorance, but actually a disdain for people of faith and institutions of faith like churches and, and synagogues, for that matter. Um, we're going to see this uh, attempts to, I uh, think, in the future. The key is that we hit every single serve that, that makes it uh, our way, uh, leaving no pitch to go past the plate. That's our perspective. As long as we keep uh, contesting these uh, time and time again, I do believe in the long run we will uh, we will see some improvement and and um, and more and more we'll get the message. But we've been going on with this fight now for uh, two and a half decades. We've already had some 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 victories, 
but um, it's gonna it's uh, we, we've got it still a good, good long ways to go, and we're gonna continue to, to to fight and defend every single one. Every and church. I would suspect that the accumulation of case law that can be presented, you know, hopefully you try to avoid going to court and having to, uh, you know, litigate these matters, um, and hopefully at least the accumulation of case law in favor of religious land use. Uh, as that continues to to build, will be at least somewhat of a tool available in your arsenal. And as you point out, at the end of the day, if a city will not hear to a constitutional reason and they have to hear it from a judge instead, well, so be it. That's why we're so appreciative that organizations like the Pacific Justice Institute exist that uh, defend not only a church's right to use its own land and property for uh, its own uh, ministry purposes, but even for people of, of faith that run into cases where, you know, a, a school, for example, says, write a paper on your hero. And in, if you happen to pick a religious figure like Jesus or Moses or St. Paul, they're told, oh, no, 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 you can't do that because it, it it somehow is a violation of separation of church and state, which, by the way, I've looked through the Constitution probably hundreds of times in my life. Don't find that line in there anywhere. Again, our thanks to Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute for not only his good job, the organization's hard work, but for the update. Once again, if you're joining us a bit late, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has now ruled that a city plan prohibiting churches from ground floor occupancy of buildings in a three-block area of downtown Salinas violates federal law And that means that New Harvest Christian Fellowship could actually use their building in spite of the fact that there are members of the Salinas City Council who don't consider them to be vibrant or fun. (laughs) Interesting criteria, don't you think? Brad Dacus, there you go, founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. 515 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, some interesting news out of Eastern Europe today. And you have to take some of this with a grain of salt, to be sure. But Russia is reportedly going to reduce its military activity in the uh, Ukrainian capital of Kiev and the northern city of Chernyiv. That city, of course, remains under fire today, although Ukrainians have made pretty significant progress in pushing the Russians back from some positions. This is following Moscow's statement that it plans to focus its efforts on parts of eastern Ukraine, where Russia has been backing pro-Russian separatists for years. Meanwhile, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency is in Ukraine as we speak to discuss what he called safety and security of the country's nuclear sites. Rafael Grossi, is in Ukraine for the first time since Russian forces seized several nuclear facilities, including the partially crippled Chernobyl nuclear power plant. He said the Russian attack is, quote, putting Ukraine's nuclear power plants and other facilities with radioactive material in unprecedented danger. This raises so many questions, not only about the safety and security of Eastern Europe in light of um, the potential risk of release of nuclear radiation. You're dealing with multiple power plants there here in the United States. We're beginning to wind our nuclear energy down. I think we've got one plant remaining, and uh, that is uh, planned to be taken offline shortly. But the broader questions in terms of safety and security of the region, not only from a nuclear standpoint, but from a militaristic standpoint, um, is continuing to be part of the debate. And while NATO post-World War II was developed as an alliance 
to help spread or prevent the further spread of control and influence of the Soviet Union. The question now becomes how much of this situation we're facing right now is because of either ineptness of NATO or Putin's fear of NATO. With some insights, we're joined by CPA, lawyer, and constitutional historian, best-selling author, and syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, hosts the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, The Bob Zadek Show, broadcast here locally in the greater San Francisco Bay region Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. And, Bob, as always, a privilege to have you join us. There's a lot to unpack here. So let's talk first about some of the the original intent of the creation of this security alliance post-World War II, and whether or not, in the broader sense, it has been more of a success or a failure throughout its history. You left out a third choice. Oh, oh, excuse me, Craig. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, Far be it. Um, That was my fault. I shouldn't have skipped over that. That's the most important part of what I have to say is to thank you for your show and for inviting me. Uh, now to your question. You said, has NATO been a success or a failure? You left out none of the above. We can discuss that as well because it's possible it's none of the above. NATO was formed right after World War II, as we all know. And NATO was formed because there was Russia which was seen accurately as a threat to Western Europe. Western, the Western European countries individually were, of course, weakened militarily as a result of World War II. And any one or several Western European countries standing alone was perceived to be uh, no match for Russia if Russia acted militarily towards them. So the natural way to fill that weakness, that imbalance, is to form an alliance, NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the countries in Europe uh, adjacent to or on the North Atlantic, banded together so that combined they were equal to or greater than the economic and military power of Russia. Kind of made sense at the time, as most treaties do, as as defense pacts often do, they band together to have collective strength. Kind of made sense. One could ask ourselves, uh, what business did the U.S. have in joining NATO? That's for another day, perhaps. Probably made sense at the time, so we joined as well to provide money and armaments and blood if needed. Okay, fast forward to the uh, disassembling, the disappearance of USSR as one country. It's splitting up into smaller countries. The economy is kind of a mess. Uh, They are, uh, and we have uh, Russia on the one hand and Germany or France on the other, and take any one of those countries, they probably were somewhat of a match. Certainly economically, they were more powerful from a population standpoint, if that matters. Uh, There was an imbalance, but not overwhelming. And ask ourselves, 
post-split up of the USSR, if we start there and ask ourselves, if we didn't have NATO in 1995, would there be a need for one? Probably not. Russia was not strong militarily. Yes, it had nuclear weapons, uh, but Russia was not collective, was not strong militarily or economically. Its economy was about the size of Italy's. So it wasn't really a threat. So if we wouldn't have needed NATO in 1995, if one didn't exist, well, don't, don't, shouldn't we be asking ourselves, do we need NATO today? What is the very purpose of NATO? And I uh, was speaking with a guest on my show, and that guest informed about these affairs, uh, offered an opinion that NATO has become, his words, a democracy club. It is where the cool kids go if you have a democracy like the European uh, Union, except, uh, yes, there's a defense component, but basically, um, as a defense pact, uh, does it make sense? After all, NATO is in, would, if it had its struthers, invite smaller Baltic countries to join? Well, certainly a small Baltic country or even Ukraine, if Ukraine were someday to join NATO, Ukraine would probably take more from NATO and benefit more from NATO, far more then it would offer a benefit to NATO. So NATO doesn't need any more club members. It has all of the troops and armament and money that it needs. So it therefore embraces smaller, weaker countries just to sort of tell as recognition, as a gold star, as something, okay, you can join the club because you are a democracy. After all, isn't that what the European Union is all about? So NATO may not make sense anymore from the standpoint of collective defense. Well, uh, it's interesting that you raise that because there is at least a school of thought. It's hard to say what's the correct or most accurate school of thought. There is a school of thought which believes, and I don't have an opinion on it myself, except I find it credible well, I don't know if it's right, but it seems credible to me that here we have NATO on the one hand, which Russia in general, Putin specifically, and maybe Putin is Russia, because Russia thinks what Putin wants it to think. So we have, excuse me, Greg, I have to, of all things, sneeze in a second. Sorry. So we have Russia believing what Putin wants it to believe, since Putin controls most of the information they receive, and Putin expresses a expresses the concept of sphere of influence, that is, countries that are in his neighborhood, if you will. And Putin, going back to the first few years of the 21st century, uh, stated he would be I'll use gentle words, quite uncomfortable if an organization, NATO, which exists as a, as a military counterbalance to Russia, he would be uncomfortable if NATO 
were on his border. That is, if Ukraine were to join NATO, and Ukraine has a border with Russia. So Putin has had an expressed matter of his foreign policy. He doesn't want a NATO country, i.e. the enemy, on his border. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Uh, And it seemed possible, I don't know if it's true, that had early in the, when Russia started to mass on the border, had Ukraine or NATO or both expressed the intention, if not a treaty, that Ukraine would never join NATO or would not join NATO for 25 years, removing from Putin the threat of having a possible enemy on his border, would Putin have invaded Ukraine? Don't know the answer to that. Many observers said he would have found another pretense. Don't know. But it is quite possible. So uh, a, a rational discussion would be, could this have been avoided, this terrible, terrible, devastating war on Ukraine? Could it have been avoided simply by Ukraine and NATO agreeing, perhaps even in a treaty with Russia, that the Ukraine would never become a member of NATO? don't know if that would have avoided it, but it's an interesting area of discussion. Well, and, and, part, and, 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 and to your point, Bob, and then we'll pick it up uh, on the other side of the break, but, but to your point, and, and I want to be very careful about, about stating something here, this is not to be construed in any wise as being supportive of what Putin has done. I have denounced it on this radio station more firmly than even some of my um, conservative uh, friends and colleagues. Uh, Putin is a war criminal. This is horrific what he has done. There is absolutely no justification or excuse whatsoever. That said, let me draw from, for slightly older Americans, uh, not necessarily ancient history, that there was a time when presence of military weapons from a perceived enemy or potential enemy put this country very at ill at ease as well. I'm referring, of course, to the presence of Russian armaments, so then Soviet armaments, located Cuba, 90 miles off the U.S. coast. That was so close for comfort that there was a major stare down between, I think it was Khrushchev at the time, and, uh, and Jack Kennedy. And we're all aware of how perilously close we came to that midnight hour when the U.S. naval blockade succeeded in getting the ships containing the weapons turned back around. So we've, in a sense, exercised the same fear over a similar topic. Now, again, no justification of Putin's actions whatsoever, but it adds a, a interesting dynamic to our discussion today. Uh, 
and when we come back, I want to dive a bit more into that part of the equation. And the other question here, too, and that is that we talk about American involvement in NATO as a deterrent for Russia. Well, um, you know, so far, Putin certainly hadn't had any hesitation to go into Chechnya, Georgia. We know a few years ago, it was 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there, uh, Crimea. Now Ukraine, of course, so the presence of NATO, at least in the periphery, hasn't made much of a difference. And quite frankly, even the whole notion of Western Europe defending Eastern Europe doesn't have a real strong history. Just ask France and England what they were doing in the early part of September 1939. And American presence or or membership in NATO, can you imagine anybody saying, yes, we're going to go to war because we're defending Latvia? Most Americans couldn't find Latvia on a map. Bob Zadek is with us today, syndicated talk show host, best-selling author. You can catch his program, The Bob Zadek Show, where he, he unwinds many of these important issues of the day every Sunday at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. More information available on the web, podcast as well, at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We take a time out back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Discussing the NATO question today with syndicated talk show host and best-selling author Bob Zadek online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Bob, I made reference to the um, October of 1962, was it, 62-63 showdown between the United States and Russia over the placement of weapons off our coast in Cuba. There are some similarities in the sense that if we felt ill at ease about that some 60 years ago, I suppose to a degree, again, not justifying the actions, but to a degree, I guess we can understand why Putin would not want to see Ukraine a member of NATO. Well, understand, uh, you're probably right with understand, except um, it's kind of, to me, a challenge for anybody to say they understand um, Putin without having any contact with him, without by having to draw conclusions about his public pronouncements, about his activities, which often seem irrational. So I don't know that I understand anything about uh, that person or that way of thinking, but the analogy is, of course, appropriate. Uh, both Putin now and Kennedy then, and we have a history in our country going back to, remember, the Monroe Doctrine, when James Monroe basically said to Western European countries, when, when we were not a military powerhouse, this is in the early part of the 19th century, there was the Monroe Doctrine, which basically, hey, Western Europe, stay out of our hemisphere. It's ours. Now, that, the concept, the, the statecraft concept, the foreign affairs concept, is called sphere of influence. Our area is our area, and we are uncomfortable about having perceived enemies in our area, whatever that means. That's not a geopolitical term. It's, it's, it's an atmospheric our area, sphere of influence. Well, Russia long since considers 
its immediate border to be part of its sphere of influence. Uh, and it feels protected, and it feels threatened if people who seem to have declared that Russia is kind of an enemy, we may talk about what that means, are they really an enemy, as that word is used, that's also an interesting conversation, uh, but in any event, Putin has made it clear it's part of his sphere of influence. Plus, there is this long cultural history, for better or for worse, uh, that Russia considered it has some kind of a, air quotes, right uh, to uh, countries on its border. After all, it's a border that often keeps on changing, and at one time it was part of Russia, the USSR, and now it no longer is, and maybe it should be, according to Russia. That's, that may be their way of thinking. So Russia seems to have expressed, not seems to, has expressed a desire that they are quite sensitive to the standpoint of using force, as to what happens on its border. And the question, what I raised earlier about NATO, not let's disband NATO, not let's pull out of NATO, quite dramatic, not even beginning to suggest that, but the question is, Russia, after all, is a power. They, uh, is it better to keep things as quiet as one can, and certainly to avoid having uh, death and war? So... Was there a way, and this is the only reason I raised NATO, question, was there a way that a different foreign policy could have avoided the devastation in the Ukraine? That's the small-ish but important question that I thought to raise. Uh, I think it's quite possible that uh, that that might have been the case. After all, there is a discussion in the news recently, in the last couple of days, that President Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is suggesting publicly that Ukraine might very well consider a treaty of neutrality whatever that even means, in exchange for an end of the war. And maybe, I don't know, but maybe something will happen on the western border of Ukraine as part of the negotiation. The point being, trading neutrality for peace through a treaty is a no-brainer. Of course, you become neutrality with appropriate safeguards. You declare neutrality. Ukraine publicly says, we agree not to join NATO for 25 years or whatever the number is. And if that would stop killing, how could there be a disagreement? Neutrality for saving lives is kind of clean way to go. And all I'm doing is inviting our listeners, your listeners, to understand that maybe there is a negotiation where each side might declare victory 
and the killing will stop. Well, and you know what's interesting about this, Bob, is the fact that I think, you know, we, we hear the term NATO bantied about. I made a scant reference earlier to the last time that there was somewhat of an agreement to uh, to protect an Eastern European country that ended in dismal failure. That, of course, the start of World War II when France and England told Hitler, you know, touch Poland and we'll go after you. And and then proceeded to do absolutely nothing, even after, ironically, both Germany and Russia gobbled up Poland. But it's interesting. We talk about the member countries of NATO and a nation right along the border of Russia joining an organization that is designed to put up a defense against Russia would you would expect would have a different reaction from Moscow than, for example, uh, Austria or Sweden, most notably Switzerland, neither of which, none of which, of the three I've just mentioned, are current member NATO countries. And I, and I, and I have my doubts that Putin would put up a stink if, if uh, you know, Sweden announced tomorrow we're joining NATO. Uh, and yet, you know, as we've kind of suggested around the periphery, this might have been a little bit too close to comfort. And I have to wonder, Bob, from your perspective, to the to the broader degree of which this security alliance has existed for the better part of, of 80 years, just how reliable it would be. And with U.S. membership, along with the other 29 countries, vowing that if any NATO member nation were ever attacked by Russia, we would go to their defense. I mean, is it really true that we would possibly here in the United States say, okay, we're sending troops overseas because Latvia has just been bombed by Moscow? I mean, I, to me, that, that might look good on paper, but I just have to really doubt that how realistic that is. Five of the NATO treaty requires it. I think, Craig, although you had kind of an explanation point in your, in your statement, I dare say, yes. If a NATO member were attacked by Russia and we didn't come to the defense of that NATO member, then we would be saying we don't honor our treaties. That can't happen. Therefore, it's, it's not the fact that we would think about coming to the aid of a NATO country. We had better do it. And if we have hesitation, what business did we have inviting them to join NATO? Or what business do we have of being a member? You don't sign treaties that you don't intend to honor. At least that's not the appropriate way to do business in foreign affairs. So I hope you're wrong. I hope that if Latvia, a NATO member, were attacked, we would come to their defense, not because we're happy to do it, but because we committed to do it by signing the treaty. Well, maybe the broader question, maybe I need to recouch that question in terms of, you know, is it an obligation that we should uphold? Yes. Does America always fully comply with the treaties we sign? No. But does it make sense for us? Maybe that's the bigger question. Uh, and, and and maybe that's part of the question. I know that, that Donald Trump has, has taken quite a rap um, in, in recent weeks uh, since the, the, the Russian attack against Ukraine, but maybe he was asking some valid questions um, with regard to the stated purpose of NATO clear back 80 years ago and whether or not it still makes sense to this very day. Hottest question of all, and I'm only 
tickling the intellect of our listeners, because you and I cannot um, change the conversation that you have um, teed up for us to discuss. But the hardest question of all, at least it is for me, is I'm going to ask a specific question and then I'm going to extend it. Today, on the 29th day of March, is Russia our enemy? Enemy, as that word is used in foreign affairs. If they are our enemy, what makes them our enemy? And then if they are our enemy, is China? Is North Korea? Is Italy? How do you decide who an enemy is? What is the act that makes somebody an enemy? If you have to decide, answer the question, A or B, are they an enemy or are they not an enemy? Craig, I can't answer that question as to any other country on Earth. I don't even know who our enemies are. And if you make a list, I would ask you why. How do you, how do you get on that list? We don't like them. They don't like us or something more. And impo- frankly, today, an impossible question to answer. No, I have to opinion. concur with you on that. And I, and I think it's a valid question that all of us need to be asking ourselves because this is a complex one. And, and you know, it, I, I think generally speaking, most people would attempt to answer that question by heading down a, a political or philosophical uh, or economic lines. Uh, and yet we certainly have significant political, economic and philosophical differences with a country like China, and yet to suggest that they're our enemy really is our largest tra- we their largest trading partner and vice versa. Are they really our enemy? I, you know, how, how do we define that? And boy, if we do it on political and 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 um, and and um, economic terms, uh, that that could be a growing and changing and undulating list. And then at the end of the day, so what, it's just us in Canada? It's an interesting question, and I think a very difficult one to be sure uh, to try to answer. Bob Zadig is with us. He, of course, syndicated talk show host, best-selling author. Bob unpacks many of these complicated, critical issues every single Sunday at 8 o'clock on his program, The Bob Zadig Show. He has an opportunity to meet with the uh, insightful newsmakers and political shakers of the world to uh, to address and help us all try and grow and learn from uh, that give and take. And we invite you to tune in Sundays to check it out for yourself. Also, great resources available at his website by going to bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back with more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with Bob Zadek, and I'm going to post the tough question, Bob. Um, We know that while there's not been direct hard support, meaning there aren't U.S. troops being sent, uh, there's been plenty of soft support for Ukraine, Uh, soft support coming from countries like Poland, the U.S., Germany, others. Uh, if, If Putin decides that he wants to respond by, let's say, a cyber attack, and said cyber attack... Uh, winds up shutting down, say, the power grid in the United States or the power grid in one of these neighboring NATO countries, are we left with a very uncomfortable decision as to trying to characterize whether or not that is considered an attack or sufficient act of aggression that would, in turn, um, kick NATO 
into a response and therefore wind up dragging us into this war? You raised such an interesting question, Craig. You said, would that be considered an attack? To me, the language of warfare almost is useless in the world we live in today. An attack, if they perform uh, cyber warfare or industrial warfare, is that an attack? Is that war? When China, and you want to further blur the line? When China resorts to the, the misappropriation, the theft of intellectual property by hacking and the like, by not honoring intellectual property treaties, and they steal important property which has defense and non-defense capability. Now, that's often called economic warfare. But is that war? Warfare. We, war had a meaning in 1942. Everybody knew what war was. Are we at war with China right now today? The fact, or do you have to have a bullet involved for it to be warfare? If a country seeks to destroy another country, but in a way where the weapon is not a bullet, but something else, does that make it not war? Or is it war? If it is war, then what's the appropriate response? To use Biden's phrase, we'll respond in kind. Uh, he wished he didn't say that. Um, do we say we'll respond? We only can respond in kind. But if somebody tries to harm us by messing with our uh, electronic infrastructure and does damage and makes people die, perhaps, is that war? If somebody has a cyber attack on the U.S., is it appropriate for us to send troops into that country? Or must you fight the war with their weapon, like a duel? And shall it be sabers or muskets? So the point is, Craig, you asked a question I was hoping you wouldn't ask. You used language of war in 2022. It doesn't work. I don't know how to answer any questions like that. Wow, uh, that's a uh, pretty heavy note to end on because at the end of the day, Bob is right. I mean, there is so much that has changed in just the last 20 years. You know, in, in the day and age when we were limited to airplanes dropping bombs, people, you know, firing across the, the frontier, whatnot, uh, as an act of war, it was easy to define, um, easy to identify, and as a result, typically easy to respond to. You drop a bomb on me, I go and drop one on you. But what if it is warfare of a different sort? What if it's an attack of a different sort? What if it takes place in, in the cyber environment as opposed to uh, in, the, in the destruction of buildings and the maiming of people? Then how do you respond and to what degree do you escalate a response in kind? And, you know, I think at the end of the day, this, this discussion uh, helps to illustrate just 
how complex all of this has become and that there are no easy answers. And as much as we should not make a rush to judgment, nor should we make a rush to react. Bob Zadek, his program heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer, we invite you to check him out. He's always got great, compelling guests and topics. A lot of times they end the show and they've got some conclusions. And a lot of times it ends up like today, where in our discussion we've probably raised more questions than we've answered. But that's okay. The main thing is that we're asking the important questions. Check him out online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's get a look at traffic. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.